Father in heaven, we come before thy throne of grace. Lord, where can we go when thou hast the words of eternal life? O Lord, it is your word that draws us together. It is your word that created all that we see and do not see. And it is your word who came to the earth in the personage of Jesus Christ. Man, God in the flesh, fully man and fully God. We thank you for him. We thank you for the salvation you've given to us through Christ. And now, Father, we sit at your feet for learning as he teaches us from thy word in the, in the agency of the Holy Spirit. These things we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> for the um, text this morning, it's going to be a very short one. Um, I've been focusing on individual Beatitudes, I have been really enthralled with them, and uh, I'd just like to read from Matthew chapter 5 once again. This time we're progressing on to verse 6, so I'm going to read the first six verses of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's kneel before the Lord to pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord God, who created this universe, who created each one of us, knows us better than we know ourselves, we pray to thee this morning hour to glorify Thee, to honor Thee directly as we address Thee, and to confess, dear Father, our own unworthiness. If each one of us were honest with ourselves this morning hour as we approached this service, as we approached Thy Word, we would have realized, dear Father, all of the unrighteousness that we have committed this week, all of the things that we have done or not done that are not according to Thy standard. Dear Father, if our hearts were in tune with Thee, we would have had a sense of our own poorness, a mourning for our own sin, dear Father, and a hunger, a desire for Thy righteousness, for what is good and right. Dear Father, we know that Thou hast placed this desire, this emptiness inside of each of us, dear Father, and we look around the world around us, we look at our dear loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, and we see so many people pushing this away and suppressing it and filling their lives with things that are not thy righteousness, things that are not the purest and the best. Dear Father, it grieves us, dear Father, and it grieves ourselves when we look at ourselves and realize how many times we have not desired what is the best. We've settled for the lies of this world. Dear Father in heaven, it is for this reason that we come to thee, dear Father, this morning hour, to be filled, to partake of 
that bread of life, Jesus Christ, the one who uttered these words 2,000 years ago, the one who opened his mouth and, and such grace came out, such clarity, dear Father, that those that would be honest and, and those that would realize would come to the recognition this is what they need. This is who they need. Nothing less than Jesus Christ. Dear Father, we thank thee so much for this opportunity. We thank thee that this is a day of rest, that the word still is being proclaimed in many places, many lands, in the face of opposition, in the face of indifference, in the face of cultures that are rapidly changing and, and turning away from things that they once nominally professed even, dear Father, and yet it is still going out. And, and we trust, we pray that it will till thou wilt return again. Dear Father, and we pray, we plead with thee, let us be part of that proclamation. Let us be faithful, dear Father. Let us be those servants that are watching, that are waiting until thou wilt return, dear Father. And the kingdom will come in its fullness and righteousness will flow down from, from heaven, from the mountains, dear Father. And, and, and all of creation will be restored, dear Father. Except those that don't now hunger and thirst for thy righteousness. Those that don't want to be part of that eternal kingdom. Those that don't want to be in the presence of all that is good and right for eternity. Dear Father, now is the time, now is the day of grace, now is the point of decision. Dear Father, we pray for those that are sick and those that are suffering under the weight of bodies that are falling, that are going into decay, that are struggling with, with terminal illnesses or chronic conditions or Maybe they don't even know what they're, what they're feeling and why they're feeling it. Don't have a diagnosis, dear Father, but know that this is the, the weight of the flesh. Help them to realize there is, there is an answer even here now in the person of Jesus Christ. There is a, a sufficiency for this present situation that they are going through in the person of Jesus Christ, in the faith and the trust in him, life abundant right now. Help them to seize upon that in faith. Help them to trust, dear Father, in the God who does not change and the God whose promises are always yes and amen. Dear Father, we pray for our children. We pray for those that are just growing up and, and beginning to understand a little bit about life and um, that there is a God above and Hopefully they are receiving this knowledge from the hands of their parents. And for those that aren't, those that are in difficult situations, abusive homes or, or, or homes that are indifferent to thee, dear Father, we pray for them. We pray for thy grace to work in spite of the sins of parents. And even we pray that for ourselves, this, our sins, our failures, we pray that thy grace would work and it would cover, dear Father, and thou wouldst redeem and uh, draw hearts to thee. Dear Father, we pray all these things looking to Jesus, the one we want to glorify in this morning hour, the one we want to lift up, the one whose name we want to be clearly proclaimed not only in, in, from our lips as we speak, as we listen, but in our hearts and in our lives that we would follow, dear Father, the footsteps of this man from Nazareth who we trust, we know, is the Son of God, God the Son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
Dear ones, what a marvelous chapter this is. When people look for value in this world, when they look for things that will last, when they look for direction, and they don't find it, we're amazed even in now that we are believers, those that are believers, we can look back and say, what a foolishness that men and women do not follow the words of Jesus Christ. As Peter says, you know, when Jesus said, will you also leave me? And he said, where will we go, Lord, when you have the words of eternal life? I had a friend from Australia a long, long time ago. I was still single, just uh, graduated, started my work, and he came to visit me from Australia. Got mixed up with some cult, even though he didn't believe in God, even though he many times sort of, he was a good friend of mine, but yet he sort of snickered at my beliefs because he thought them incredulous. You know, how can you believe in a, someone that can create everything with you know, just, just doesn't follow the rules of science. But when he got mixed in with this, with this group called the Moonies, some of you may have heard of them, Reverend Moon, they called them the, um, the uh, some church, I even forgot, he's a, he's a pastor from Korea, and um, he called me from San Francisco, and he said, Doug, uh, I, I want to actually call me Dragon. He knew me as Dragon. He said, I want to come to Toronto like I said I would. And um, um, I want to discuss with you something very important. I said, what is that? He said, I want to discuss with you the Bible. I said, whoa, you? I mean, <laughs> I didn't tell him that, but I said, for sure. Make a long story short, they wouldn't let him go. Finally, he said he'll come back, and he begged them, and da da da, and they let him go. And we we met, and as I was taking him home from the airport, I said, "I don't understand this, Steve. You were an atheist. You didn't believe in God. As a matter of fact, you you probably had some funny ideas as why I even believed in in God." And the words that came out of his mouth was, "Dragon." I was so foolish never to have believed in something so rich as the Bible. His father was a doctor. He was a doctor. His brother was a doctor. His mother was Jewish. They came from a well-educated, uh, uh, decent household. And he tells me this in the car. I won't go with the rest of the story, but the point is, that what we see in the Word of God, and especially from the Christ himself, from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to this world it's foolishness, but to us it's wisdom and understanding and guidance and our existence depends on it and our subsistence depends on it. And this is what the crowds that followed Jesus Christ were hoping for when they gathered around about him on this 
not, not a huge mountain, but this hill up northern Gal- in, uh, just north of uh, Bethsaida and, uh, and Capernaum um, into a mount. As he gathered around, he says, the disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying. And he heard some radical, they heard some radical things. They were radical. They've never heard this kind of teaching before. Even even later on, the Jews said, this man is not like the scribes and the Pharisees, for he speaks with authority. And uh, the word radical actually means new and not usual, different from the usual. That was certainly different from the usual. And we went through the poor in spirit, those that are abjectly poor, that can do nothing of themselves, that are completely dependent on God, that are humble and, are, and at God's feet, beseeching him and begging him for grace and for mercy. Then there are those that mourn, those that not just mourn because of uh, um, their sin, that's, that's a big part of it, not because they see that they're abjectly poor and they need a saviour and they need someone outside of themselves to save them, but also for other things in life. Remember, Jesus wants to, uh, as, as said in, in, in Thessalonians 5, I believe, that the apostle Paul prayed that their whole body, soul and, and spirit be preserved unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus had the same thing, the same Mission that Isaiah 61 gives that is repeated in Luke chapter 4. To, to heal the brokenhearted. To preach the gospel to the poor. You know, we shouldn't be so mechanical Christians that the only thing that we think about, oh, your salvation is the only thing that you need and that's all I'm going to tell you. There are people that are sick. There are people that are poor. There are people that are isolated. There are people that are lonely. And there are people, many that are sinners. God is involved with the holistic healing of a being as his will is. Then he says, blessed are the meek, those they shall inherit the earth. Those that are gentle, those that do not retaliate, those that are, set, are satisfied and content. And then he comes to the last one. And remember, these build on one another. They build. They're like steps up to the pinnacle, to the temple of God. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's what the word filled means. When someone has eaten, when someone has eaten to the full, not overly full, but just enough, they are satisfied. They quench their thirst and they are satisfied. So what does he mean when he says that? What did Jesus really mean when he said, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness? What comes to your mind when, we, we, when, when you read that? When I read that, is it that every now and then I have a sip of water just to quench my thirst and go on? 
Is it every now and then I have a snack between meals just to keep me going until the next meal? The word hunger, if you look at the full array of meanings, the one of the words that comes to that definition is crave. Those that crave after righteousness, those that yearn after righteousness. It's like Jesus being in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. He ate nothing or drank anything. And it says that after that he was and hungered. Well, it wasn't just a little snack before, in between meals every 40 days. He was starving. He was famished. Like the prodigal son was famished because he had nothing to fill his belly with. So I propose that when we look at this word, we don't just think it's just a little bit to keep me going till the next day. Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 7, give us this day. And, and by the way, that word there is, there's no word daily in the Greek. It's, it's really needful. Give us this day our needful bread. It's being translated as daily because it's needed daily. But give us this day our needful bread to give me enough strength to go on for today. But what Jesus is talking about, someone that is craving or really yearning and hungering after the righteousness of God, it's not, shouldn't be just in little, you know, finger foods. Let me... Um, lead you through if you want to follow through the book of Psalms Psalms 42 many of you know this we sing this song uh, every now now and then Psalm 42 verse 1 as the heart panteth after the water brooks so panteth my soul after thee O God what does panting mean it's like this deep, passionate breathing and, and yearning for something because he is looking for a water hole and he finally finds one, maybe after being chased by a predator, and he finally is thirsty and he comes and gulps down that water. He's panting after it. Just read a story, this very sad story in Africa, the drought that's been going on there, the, the, the animals that have been dying because of the drought, elephants, and wildebeest and all kinds of animals that are dying because of a lack of water. Do we pant after the righteousness of God? My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. And then he says, when shall I come and appear before God? I'm not sure what he meant by that. Was he looking for the time where, was he on the run and he was waiting to go back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, back to worship God in, in the whole environment of temple worship? When? Or was he just saying, I can't wait to worship thee on the Sabbath day. This is David. Mashil, should I say, written for the sons of Korah. 
My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? Obviously, he's under some kind of stress, some kind of, some kind of duress, and he, he craves to feel the presence of the living God. Let's go to chapter 63. It's not far from here. 63 verse 1. We could just preach on this chapter alone, on this theme, because it's so full of what Matthew 5, 6 says. Chapter 63, verse 1 of Psalms. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. And in verse 5 he says, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Verse 8, my soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. Can we ask ourselves, dear ones, do we have that yearning and craving to be with God, to be in the house of God, to be with the people of God? You see, thirsting and hungering after the righteousness is not just saying, well, I've done my morning devotions. That's part of it. That's just a part of it. But it goes far deeper than just reading about God. It goes into worshipping God. It goes into feeling his presence in corporate worship, in singing, in praying, in, in, in fellowshipping called communion in the New Testament. Fellowship and communion are the same word, koinonia, having this common union with God. Here's another one, Psalm 107, 8 and 9. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he, satith, for he satisfieth the longing soul, the yearning soul, the craving soul, and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. How much are you satisfied with? How much am I satisfied with? What makes me content? Perhaps we can say, if I was so contented with my daily bread, with my food, with my provision, with my work, with, with whatever leisure time I have, as I was with a spiritual thing, how content would we be? This is um, such a powerful verse that Jesus gives to his people. Remember, Jesus said, except in the same chapter, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall not see the kingdom of God. And you think, some might say, well, that's, pretty, that's a pretty low bar because 
Apparently the Pharisees weren't very righteous. But maybe he was speaking in hyperbole or some figure of speech where to let them know that the Pharisees are not your standard. The righteousness of the Pharisees is not what you go by. What is the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God, and I've preached it many times, especially from the book of Romans, where it's mentioned 35 times, approximately. The righteousness of God is that God is right in everything he does, says, thinks, or, 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 or commands. God is right. He is the standard. He is that bar, if you will. And being faithful to the covenant that he has made with us, when we are faithful to that covenant, we are deemed in God's, in God's mind righteous. What is his covenant? He said that he'll make a new covenant through David, the descendant of David. What is that covenant? The covenant was going to be that the, the line of the tribe of Judah, the descendant of David, will one day become the sacrificial lamb, the paschal lamb, the Passover, that if anyone believes on him, on his death, burial, and resurrection, he will be forgiven of his sins, not by the performance of his works or deeds or his religiosity, but he'll be justified by the faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And Paul says, and this will be imputed to us as righteousness. It's very, it's a very um, peculiar, maybe not peculiar, that the word justify and righteous have got the same root in the Greek. It's the same root. God justifies us, and that word justifies is just another word for saying makes us right. God makes us right in his eyes and declares us righteous because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Romans 3, I think is what, 25 says that we are being justified by his blood. Now the blood itself doesn't justify us, but faith in his blood, being justified by the faith in his blood, we become declared righteous, acceptable in God's covenant. But that's just a positional righteousness because it's got far more than that. It's not just faith in his blood. Faith justifies us before God, but it's not a one-time faith. It's not a one-time belief. It's not just a one-time act that will justify us for the rest of our lives. Apostle James says, not only do the hearers of the word but we need to be doers of the word. Not only the he that has faith, but he that has faith and works. Now, works doesn't justify us in the sense of 
our past life, our past sins. We believe in God. We believe what he did. We firmly believe what he did. We truly in our heart, it says with a, with a mouth, a, a confession is made unto salvation. And in the heart, man believes unto righteousness. Man believes unto righteousness. And what is that righteousness? Whose righteousness? The righteousness of God. That perfect character. That perfect holy. You know, when, when Jesus says, when the, the young ruler called Jesus a uh, good master, what did Jesus say to him? What do you call me good for? What do you call me good? He says, there's none good but God. There is none good. What do you mean? But aren't Christians good? God has declared them righteous. But the source of all righteousness is God himself. The source of all good is God himself. And we don't somehow earn or generate our own righteousness. This is the whole thing. The righteousness that we have comes by imputation. When someone declares you, you know, you get these um, honorary degrees in a university. Einstein had an honorary degree in whatever it was, and so-and-so had an honorary degree, even though they had never attended those universities uh, to study, to get past their exams, they got an honorary degree. Why? It's been imputed to them because of who they are, because of what they have perhaps done in another university. They've, they've accepted that. With Jesus Christ, it is not what we have done, it is what he has done that gives God the power, the authority to say, because you have believed on the sacrifice which was given to you on Golgotha by my son, and you believe that he was raised again from the dead, that's what Romans 4 says, he was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification, because of that, I declare you righteous, acceptable, in my sight. Nothing that we can boast about. Nothing that we can say I earned. As a matter of fact, if anything, it should keep us humble. And so we have this positional righteousness with God. Through Christ. But then, there are, there's a life that we need to live. You remember the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes really describe kingdom people. Cannot, I can't emphasize that enough. That what Jesus is talking about, he's saying, what I am showing you here is what a kingdom child will do, will be, will believe, what his attitudes are. This is what... A kingdom child looks like, and that's and the very end of the chapter, he says, that ye may be basically called the children of your father. When you don't resist evil, when you overcome evil with good, when you love your enemies, that ye may be 
called the children of your father. You are his representatives. You are his children. And when people see you, Jesus said, when people see your good works, when you have love one to another, people will know that you're my disciples. People will know that you're children of God. First Timothy six. First <clears throat> Timothy six six eleven. This is talking to a this is talking to Timothy, the bishop of Ephesus, the young bishop of Ephesus, who's already been baptized, who's already a disciple of Jesus Christ. He said, but thou, O man of God, you're a man of God. Flee these things. Flee all these sinful uh, uh, habits and sinful deeds that was num- uh, enumerated before. Flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, you can go to Galatians chapter 5 and finish off the fruit of the Spirit. He was talking to a believer, a young believer. Though you have been declared righteous at one time in your life, follow these things. Keep following these things. Do we do that? Do we have not only this positional righteousness, which is given to and imputed to us, do we actually practice and experience this practical righteousness that is basically trying in this flesh to conform to the image of Jesus Christ? Remember, the righteousness is not ours. The righteousness is given to us even when we sin as believers and we repent. We're not forgiven because we deserve it. Remember that. It is given still as a gift through the the intercession of the high priest, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It says in 1 John chapter 2, 1. He's not only the propitiation for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, it says. So when we fall short, do we come back to him? Do we feel grieved? Do we mourn? Do we, are we saddened because we have hurt and, 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 and grieved our Savior, our Lord, who, di- who died on the cross for our sins? We, went, we talked about that in the morning beatitude the last time we, we had a topic on this. The service we had a couple of weeks ago. What the mourning meant when we mourn. John says that we are not to sin. He says children do not sin. Okay. But if you do, you know that you have an advocate, a paraclete, one that stands in the gap. The same as the Holy Spirit, the one that Jesus said, if I go, I will send you another comforter. 
another strengthener, another one that will stand in the gap for you, not only to guide you, to teach you, to, to convict you, but one that will pray for you, Romans 8, with groanings that cannot be uttered. Because he wants us to maintain that righteous relationship with him. Why, why does he want us to do that? Because we represent him, God. We are his image. We are created in his image. And we need to portray that image to the rest of the world. We'll get to that in a minute. So living in this world... This is why Jesus, I believe, gave in Matthew chapter 5 those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Because remember, we've got to keep the whole Sermon on the Mount in context here. Your righteousness and my righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. It cannot be this superficial, outward appearance. You know, we have our own personal lives, don't we? We know when we fall. We know when we mess up. We know when we sin. We know when we do not conform to the righteousness of God. But what about our public life? Even when we come to church, we could be very private. It's our public life, but we keep things private. Because there are things that we know we've said, we've done, we've thought, we've acted. You know, Jesus, it says in Corinthians 1, verse 30, he has become to us, Jesus has become to us wisdom and sanctification and righteousness and redemption. He is the righteousness that we need to conform to. He is what exemplifies and what is the key model in our lives as to how we are to behave. How is our righteousness, so-called, this imputed righteousness now put into practice? How do we now deal with it? How do we experience it with others? What is our relationship with others, those that are around us? You know, we may, be, we may have our righteousness in Christ, but what about those that are around about us? How do we manifest that righteousness. You just have to go further down into Matthew chapter 5. You just have to look at what Jesus said. I mean, this, this whole theme is, is, is so grandiose because it's all there. If we just keep on pulling the, the, the layers off and off, you will see that Jesus is alluding to this. He says, he talks about...
Verse 22, 21, let's back up. Ye have heard that it was said to them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of judgment. The Bible says in James, it says, The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. When we put our righteousness into practice, and it's practical righteousness, the things that we do, the things that we say, how we deal with our brother, that's when the rubber meets the road, doesn't it? He talks about saying some not so nice things to each other. Racker, you fool. How do we deal with that? This is where righteousness that Jesus is talking about this is not just reading your book, being, reading the Bible and being hungry for the Word of God. I'm hungry for the Word of God. I'm just, just, just soaking it in. What about in your practical life? That's what he's talking about. When we read the Word of God and when we pray and when we worship, that helps us in our relationships. That helps us in our practical experience in the righteousness of God. But we've got to be craving for that too. If I have offended my brother, it's not that I walk away and say, hmm, I'm not going to, I don't think I can face him, I'm not going to face him. We should be craving, yearning to go back and say, brother, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said that to you. I, I know I flipped off the, off the handle. But please forgive me. I, didn't, I really didn't mean it. I do love you. That's the kind of... If, if there's a word that can be used for this beatitude, it's passion. What kind of passion do we have for the righteousness of God? We're passionate about many things, just like I'm passionate of speak, preaching now. But are we passionate about doing the will of God? You know, we, see, we, we heard the, uh, Jesus say to the, um, to the uh, disciples when he said, Oh, you know, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. But it's not just this indifferent, casual. It's, it's, it's this willingness to to passionately serve Jesus by fulfilling his every desire and wish. Because we appreciate, we are so thankful for what he has done in his righteousness, in that when he could have punished sin by causing us to be punished with his punishment, by, by relegating us to hell because of our sin, instead, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. Do we have that passion? That we don't let the sun go down on our wrath? Do we have that passion? How about this one? You know, there was a, I've been studying the early church a lot, 
there was a writer of a book called The Rise of Christianity. His name was Rodney Stark, if I remember correctly. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a Christian. He was an agnostic. But he studied the early church in the first century. And one thing he noticed, as chaotic and as, as terrible that world was back then, with, that, with the, 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 the bloodshed that was, was created by the Romans and with the, 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 the terrible pagan sins of, of uh, leaving your children out on, on, the, on the roadside to die if you didn't want them, to all these horrific, heinous sins and crimes that were going on. To the poverty, to the homelessness, to the abuse, to the murder, to the hate. He said one thing he noticed. It was the Christian. It was the Christian when they saw foreigners and strangers coming into the city because of refuge or because of lack of food or whatever. It was the Christians that took them in. When they saw the widows and the orphans, it was the Christians that fed them, that clothed them, that visited them, that even made them appendages to their family. They expanded their families. It was the Christian that even during epidemics, floods and fires, earthquakes, they would go out there and treat the injured, the suffering, bury the dead. It was the Christian. And what a testimony that was. What a testimony was. This was righteousness in action. This was righteousness of God in action. And it cannot occur apart from the righteousness of God. Unless we have received his pardon and forgiveness and we know what it's like to be poor and we know what it's like to be persecuted and we know what it's like to be abused and oppressed. When we feel it and we see others, as Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that's righteousness in action. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. Not just reading his word, not just praying, not just attending church, but going out there and doing things that people can see you, as he said, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. You can't hide a candle under a bushel. Salt that's lost his savour is good for nothing but to be trodden under the feet of men. Are we practically, not just positionally, practically righteous in God's eyes? Are we doing his will? Are we deviating from that standard of righteousness and holiness? I'm going to close with this saying, you know, we are not perfect Christians. We are not perfect Christians. So the initial justification, we become his children. But there's a long journey. It's a long race. Hebrews 12.1 talks about this, this race that is set before us where we are so easily beset with sin and every weight that 
holds us down and drags us back. I want to give you this quote by John Newton. I, I did this before once. John Newton was the slave trader, if you remember. He said, I know I am not what I ought to be. And I know I'm not what I want to be. And I know I'm not what I hope to be in the world to come. But I know that I'm not what I used to be. This slave trader that are abusing people, trafficking people back then. For money, the, root of all, the love of which is the root of all evil. He said, I'm not what I used to be. God changed me. He imputed to me righteousness. And now what I need to do is to be used by him. To be the salt of the earth. To be the light of the world. And to show others unto Christ. Now when you read Matthew 25, when Jesus says, For I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was in prison. I was sick. You gave me food. You gave me drink. You visited me. You clothed me, you comforted me, insomuch that you have done it unto the least of these. You have done it unto me. That all stems from 25 to Matthew 5. It all stems from this beautiful beatitude. Unless we thirst and hunger and have the passionate desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he did for us. We won't be filled. We won't be satisfied. We'll go on thinking that we can find this satisfaction in other places with other people. I pray it's not so for you. I pray that you would see that this is the best life ever when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The tomb be the glory. And you may have heard what is it that you're looking for in your life? What are the things that will fill the void in your life? My mind goes to the woman at the well who was coming to that well every day at noon to draw water. And Jesus said, if you would have asked of me, I would have given you living water that you would not have to thirst again or come here to draw. Her response was, ever give me that water. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, verse 6, he's going to give you just what you need. 
that will satisfy you, that will fill you. That's when he says filled, he means more than enough to satisfy you. Or another word you could use is fulfill. Your life will be fulfilled when you follow after righteousness, God's righteousness. It's sad that many people don't believe that. It's sad that they, like little children, grab the things that are closest to them or the things that shine or the things that glitter only down the road to be greatly disappointed and distraught. Just this past week, two young celebrities died. And before that, died. Many of them taking their own lives because they were drawing from the well that was not living water, but water that was toxic, water that was one day kill them. And I pray, my dear friend, outside of Jesus Christ, in the next chapter, 6, Jesus said very plainly, it's all linked, it's all tied together because it's the wisdom of Christ. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and what? What is it? His righteousness. And all these things that you are worried about, that you are concerned about, that you fret about, will be added to you in due time, as God wills, as he sees that you need. But first seek the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will fall into place according to his will. To him be the glory evermore. Amen. This concludes this morning's service.